And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was recorded on December 18th, 2020. Michael Dunn is the founder and president of Preservation Tree. He is the consulting municipal arborist for Westchester Borough in Pennsylvania and urban forestry consultant for land studies, a leading environmental firm in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. His main area of focus since 2016 has been the integration of the urban forest into urban and regional planning in southeastern Pennsylvania and beyond. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Michael. We're so happy that you could be with us today. Well, thanks for having me. The pleasure is mine. We are excited about the topics we're going to be talking to you about today, especially about the suburban areas where we, we think about, um, you know, everything's green or there's farmland. But what about the small towns like Westchester? How, how do you go about managing your forests in a small town like Westchester? So I'm a big uh, proponent of GIS technology. So I use two different inventory systems. We use ArcGIS as we, the university did an inventory project about three years ago, which I assisted with um, Westchester University, obviously. And I helped volunteers get ready to uh, tool up to do that inventory. But I also use my own inventory program, Planet Geo, which um, is a Colorado-based firm that does international work all over the, all over the world. And I use that for my working inventory, which I call the rolling inventory. So every tree that we look at where we have to do risk analysis gets recorded. And every tree that we um, work is performed to are, are recorded in a separate database. So, so the uh, university is more of a scientific-driven uh, inventory, and the one I use is more of a uh, management flow. So we are constantly dealing with resident requests and the actual need. So we have some very needy portions of town. And actually, the most needy portions of town are ones that don't make the most requests. There's some socioeconomic issues there, which um, something I'm really trying to uh, push in 2021 is uh, addressing some of the social issues of urban forestry. You know, reaching out to certain parts of the community that don't normally uh, seek government help, or they might have a mistrust of local government. So mm, that's uh, very interesting. The whole the whole idea of tree canopy and social injustice. I, I really uh, think that we're going to see a lot more of that down the line uh, when we look at funding for certain areas. So is that something that you're seeing, Michael? Yeah, we're, I mean, I was kind of motivated with the uh, current events of this year. And I don't know if you guys read the article in uh, the New York Times about the redlining of Richmond. So, you know, how can we in the industry 
post-social justice ideas with urban forestry. And, you know, I've been working with Dr. Welch at the university to try to figure out how we can, how we can do that. And getting people involved in the community is, is another really, you know, big thing we've been pushing to do. So we have a local tree tenders group now, and we're trying to get representation in every part of the community, not just, you know, the, the normal parts of the community that are normally interested in this topic. We want equal representation across the board. So, you know, there's a lot of mistrust with just having a tree in front of your house sometimes. The perceived maintenance, you know, we have some legal issues in town where the tree is a shared resource between the residents, the community, and the borough. So when the tree dies, it's the homeowner's responsibility to pay for half of that cost. So people don't want to plant a tree now because now they had to pay $1,500 to remove something. So, you know, ideally we're working towards taking complete control of that tree from cradle to grave, but the, uh, the money's not really there right now. So is it, is it possible that that could be some kind of um, nonprofit grant type of money or maybe from a corporation where you can get money for takedowns and with, for people who may not be financially solvent to be able to do that? Or is it uh, something that the timber industry could do? I know uh, I, I talk about this a lot. Um, I'm, we're involved with uh, the Urban Tree Network with my company, and they do fabulous things with urban trees where they can take them down for much less expense than if you had to do it in the traditional way. They do it atypically. And utilize that material for local timber. I know that they also started a grading program for their their timber um, and they're hoping that their organization goes national because it's it's so invaluable to communities like Westchester and other locations around the country where you may have um, these pockets of areas where people can't really take down their trees but need to. Yeah, we do have an assistance program and usually it's only for nonprofits. So we have a um, what's called the Melton Center in town, which is a traditional center for the African-American community. Believe it or not, Westchester was fairly segregated, not legalistically, but just kind of undercover in the, you know, in the 1930s and 40s. And the Melton Center was created as a community center for the African-American community. And, you know, it's completely relying on um, volunteer effort to maintain it, but they do have some old trees and the borough has uh, helped them to remove them when they're in need of removal. Grant funding is always something we're going after. And it seems as though most of the grants available are for new trees to be installed, street trees. And most of the grant funded trees that we see are fairly small caliper, which is a little bit of a problem in a city. I mean, we're not a city city, but we still have the same issues and we have a university. So we go for bigger material where possible because we have a lot of vandalism with, especially with the students in the after hour activities in certain areas of town where, you know, we have a big restaurant and bar area downtown. So the blocks between the university and that section get annihilated every single year. So mm. <laughs> well, you don't think about that, but I know that that was a really big issue when I lived in England, uh, mm-hmm. they uh, allowed for a certain percentage of vandalism, uh, mm-hmm. which was I was like, what? What's that about? Um, But even the trees in the countryside, they had problems with vandalism. You don't really think about that, but, you know, here's another uh, 
uh, twist in the story that um, a lot of people don't think about. Yeah, this year, I mean, one of the silver linings of COVID is the university population is diminished and we haven't lost too many trees to vandalism. So hopefully they get rooted by next year when the kids come back. So Maybe that'll be a future PhD study is uh, the relationship between alcohol and rage against trees because <laughs> it's, it's kind of universal. You've had a bad night at the bar for whatever reason. Let's rip the head off this newly planted ginkgo. I'll feel better, you know. Very strange. Well, interestingly, um, I, I do engage with a lot of the students. There's a, a tree group at the university. And since I've really reached out, and I've had a few interns from the university that I've employed at my main job at Land Studies, as well as um, gotten jobs in the tree industry. And I feel as though are making some inroads. So if there's one kid in that crowd that has a little stake in the game, then hopefully he can dissuade his uh, his his friends from uh, causing too much destruction. You know, I don't mind toilet paper and all the other stuff, but just uh, just don't mess my trees up. <laughs> right. So you're uh, the the Westchester Borough is working with uh, the Horticulture Society's Tree Tenders program. Actually, it's their own organic program. So okay. there's a group in Westchester that's called the Green Team, and they were instrumental in doing uh, bioswales and rain gardens and um, establishing the plastic span, which actually hasn't gone into effect because of COVID. So they started an offshoot called the tree team and I was trying to get them to go through the tree tenders program. And it's a great program. And some of them thought it was a little below them, which I tried to encourage them that it's, it's not at all. So I guess we can't really call it a tree tenders group. Although, um, they do a very similar thing. So we have representation from each section of town. It allows me to keep eyes and ears on the ground. Um, we've stopped about four or five illegal tree removals a month because of them. Um, we stopped illegal pruning. Uh, you know, people that do stupid things to trees, we um, usually can find them and stop them before the tree, uh, you know, is harmed in any way. From an engineering standpoint, Michael, what are the uh, dimensions of of the uh tree pit areas are they like they are in philly like a three foot by four in a, out of the sidewalk or is it a continuous pit so we have quite a few different arrangements we have continuous pit um, systems in boulevard areas that are all kinds of shapes so i actually did a study last year of the market district which is the most urban intense area of town i'd say about 85 percent of them are five by five or four by four and then we have some really abnormal ones that are there. So we have one guy that's actually kind of organically taught himself how to build better tree wells in town. He was a mason. And so he was building sidewalks that kind of wrapped around um, more organically that allowed more space for trees, especially mature trees. And last year we passed a new saddle ordinance where any new development in the market district is required to install uh, soil cell systems. So we'll be using silver cells in the market area in any sort of urban area. And one of our biggest projects is called 44 West. They, they tore down a building downtown and we put a plaza and courtyard in. And that got in right before the soil cell requirement, but we did meet them in the middle and we have uh, Cornell soils in that. So there's a lot of soil volume there. And we're using the uh, deep root infrastructure's uh, soil volume requirements as part of our ordinance. You know, we don't have a ton of big development, but as we move forward, it's, 
you know, it'd be really hard to replace all the tree wells with soil cells in one shot, but we can do it slowly through time. Did you have to sell that uh, to the powers that be, the uh, ordinances to use silver cells and such? Uh, yeah, it was, it was not an easy sell. So yeah. I've been talking about soil cells for probably 10 years now. So I started annoying people in Westchester about trees about the same time. And, you know, the average life expectancy of our street trees is, you know, probably 15 years between vandalism and, and just, uh, you know, salt damage and all that. And we have an aging infrastructure. We had two major public works projects in the, in the 60s and 70s that really are the majority of our trees in the market district. And they're all checking out their, you know, soil volume depletion and um, bacterial leaf scorches is ravaging the pin oaks. So we're losing a huge percentage of canopy. And you guys already know this, but you know, replacing a two inch caliper tree when you had a 30 inch caliper pinnock is, you know, the environmental loss is pretty extreme. So we need to be doing better moving forward. And actually that loops me back to something. I don't want to be the guy on the soapbox ranting, but knowing that you have a background in the commercial and private sector, I am constantly challenging my arborist friends to say, how can the big commercial tree companies get involved with planting a week or so after they take that 30 inch pin oak down. And, um, you know, from the business standpoint, there's a lot of numbers crunching because it's expensive to run a tree company and plant in two inch diameter replacement white oak. You know, it's hard to keep you in the black if, if you're doing it that way. Do you have any thoughts along those lines? I mean, I would love for every tree that's removed to be replanted. And when I had my own business, we used to give away a one inch caliper tree every time we removed a tree for like a period of like 12 months. It got pretty expensive. And at that point, I was trying to get out of tree care in general and move towards um, consulting. And I was gearing up to sell the business at that point. So I really liked the idea. I wish we could plant 100 trees for every large tree we lose. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a huge proponent, but as far as Westchester is concerned with our new tree ordinance that passed last year, um, you cannot break over any existing tree well, and you're required to have, you know, 25 to 35 foot trees on center and all, and all right aways. So this year is really the first year where I've been just putting trees where I feel like it. And I've irritated some people and I've really been testing the, uh, the boundaries of the uh, tree ordinance. So I started these projects in the uh, rental regions of town and, there's not a lot of vested interest, but I'm kind of moving into more residential areas. And so, I mean, I'm not putting in, if there's a grass strip between the street and the sidewalk, you know, we consider that fair game. Any trees that you're favoring in that uh, elusive, like funny 15 to 25 foot height at maturity, I always feel like some problems could be solved if there was a bigger palette of uh, smaller trees that could be used. I mean, there's kind of like five trees that, are the go-tos for those areas and I'm kind of sick of all of them. <laughs> yeah. But, so I've, I've been experimenting with witch hazel. Um, That's a good one. A, a good one. Our native witch yeah. hazel or are yep. you using of the, the vernal witch hazel? The, um, I'm using the native stuff. Um, I, I just, I've seen it work in a few places. It's a little bit wider at the base than some of the trees, but I use red buds a lot. I use witch hazel. Westchester has a history with cherry trees. 
So the Hoops Brothers Nursery is an historic nursery that was around since the 1840s. And the original shipment of uh, the cherries that Japan had gifted us uh, in 1905, I think, when it arrived, it was half of them were dead and half of them were had scale. So the Hoops Brothers Nursery had actually imported those cherries prior to that gifting. So we've been trying to replant um, some of the LAs of cherries that we've lost over the years. So Okami cherries are kind of the favorite for that. A little more upright, less problematic, less graft issues, less canker, more urban tolerant, I would say, than some of the other versions. So that's one thing we're always taking into consideration, the historical. Uh, we've had some pretty intense landscape architecture through the years, um, major public works projects all the way back from the 1700s. So we're always competing with the environmental and historical needs of the community. Do you plant any uh, sergeant cherries by any chance? Yes. Yeah, that's the one that actually is, you know, we have a few in town that are historic in nature. So every congressman received a gift from, from Japan as well. So we still have one of those at the, uh, at the old estate there. And so we're trying to find a, a, actually a better source for those because we've had quite a few requests of that. So have you, have you done any, um, have maybe have a nursery come and take some cuttings from those so that you can continue the provenance of that tree? Of the genetics of that tree? That's um, something we've been talking about. So the university does not have a horticulture program by any means, but they have a really good biology department and they have nursery equipment on site. So we'd really like to start growing our own historic trees, um, either by seed. So we, we have a few oaks in town that are champion trees or historic in nature that we'd like to start growing and then auctioning off. And hopefully, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Casey Trees. That's one of the models I've always followed with this endeavor. And, you know, I would love to have our own nursery that can sustain our street trees at some point. But uh, those are, you know, long-term goals right now. I just took a class with them two weeks ago, Casey. It was an excellent, excellent program. And of course, cherries were talked about there as well. And And I think that you know, we have a lot of nurseries surrounding you that probably would be interested in helping with your program, you know, to have it uh, have a longevity with your town. Maybe the biology department might not always have that as their main object, but um, having someone local could could continue that provenance on with the town of, of Westchester. Uh, because I, I really think that having uh, old genetics is an important part of the success of a, an urban forest, mm-hmm. um, but also new genetics as well. Uh, you know, whether that's coming from uh, further south or whether it's coming directly from Japan or uh, for cherry trees in particular, maybe some more uh, oak species that you're not growing right now, like the post oak or shingle oak or something like that. We have kind of street by street um, tree collections and Neal Street has always been known for its oak trees, and unfortunately, we're losing a ton of the reds in the pin. So we've used shingle, we've used post, we've used a lot of willow oak to uh, replace those, uh, more climate-forward trees. There's a ton of oaks out there, and sometimes finding local sources for those trees is a little bit difficult, but we try to source all our trees from Chester County as well. And you said that's Neal Street in Westchester? Uh, Neal Street, yeah. N-E-E-L? N-I-E-L-D-S. So, oh, okay. And then 
traditionally when you were coming into town on North High Street going south, there was an allay of uh, sycamore, which of course are mostly gone. And we've been replacing that with London Plain. And Sharpless Street was also lined in sycamore. And there's still a good number of them that are healthy enough to keep around. And then we've been replacing them. You know, my predecessor started this 20 years ago with London Plain in there. So Sharpless is kind of right on the edge of the universities. You know, the university areas don't aren't as well maintained. And when you move to the, the residential districts, they're usually much better. So it's something we're always cognizant of. Will there ever be a time, Michael, where getting back to those four by four and five by five pits, they can look pretty sad, you know, two or three years later, you know, you see some subsidence and you see that it was kind of a low grade soil that the contractor used. Will there, does the nutrient ordinance uh, specify a soil mix? I mean, I know you talked about Cornell structural soil, but for the residential situation, absentee rentals and stuff like that, would there ever be a day where uh, that becomes part of the planting is a little bit of soil replacement? We don't have that strictly in the ordinance, but in the RFP process, when we, um, we don't do much of our own planting, it's all contracted out. So we specify that planting grade soil of a certain complexion has to be replaced in each, each well. So it's not just digging a hole. We have to remove all the soil matter that's in there. Mm-hmm. And especially for trees where we're replacing a tree that was just removed, the, all these big trees coming down and the, the stump grindings are just an enormous amount of stump grinding. So we have to get all of that out of there, you know, down to uh, 36 inches. You know, getting the right kind of contractor that's not going to, it is an RFP process, so it is low bid. But we try to put the specifications in place where only quality companies can even apply for that. That's a great idea because... There are so many companies that just don't do a good service for the institution that they're working for. And uh, they either have poor quality tree or, and of course, as you as an arborist, you're going to pick the best tree possible. And I'm wondering if you go to the nursery to pick them before they even arrive. In some cases, yes. There's certain nurseries I distrust. We work with mostly Chester County nurseries and I've been working with Watercrest for a long time. I'm probably not supposed to name drop here, but... Uh, I was hoping that you would. Yeah. <laughs> Harmony We're Hills. not stopping you from doing that, Michael. <laughs> so I've been working with Chris Yuland at Harmony Hills for a long time as sure. well. Chris and I also are both consulting arborists, so we, um, we work together professionally quite often. And there's a few nurseries that have gone out of business, unfortunately. Uh, Ticklewood was our go-to for years. Yeah. Um, Natural Landscapes, Jim Plyler is still in business, but he's trying to sell. He has great plant material. You know, obviously for uh, memorial trees, we go to Sam Brown's quite frequently. They have a pretty wide array of trees you don't see everywhere. So those are kind of our go-tos, but um, it's always difficult with how we have to order plants in the municipal setting to get the best quality. Because the same way with the RFPs, you have to spec everything it's like hitting a moving target. The municipal process takes so long to order. It takes us almost two months to get the orders set. I don't want people to hold trees for me if something doesn't work out and then they lose out on a sale. So by the time it's ready to go, oftentimes we have to make last minute decisions to change the, change the orders around. So and there's, no, and there's no way to speed that process up at all because you're working with a living thing? The way the municipal government works, I'm not technically, a, I'm a consultant, so I'm not a full-time employee. So there's whole 
separate level of red tape I have to go through to get things approved. So it's always an issue, but we, we've been getting it done. And this year we planted 200 trees, which is our best year ever. So Wow. Congratulations. Um, and, and about education, you talk about the university being there and then having these tree groups, but how else do you educate the general public, especially in those low-income areas, on the importance of having a tree and the valuation that they bring to a location, uh, for example, in a, in a community that's, that's having some financial strife? How can how does that translate to the to the everyday resident? One thing we always try to do is reach out to the kids. Kids love digging holes and getting dirty. So this year not so much, but in the last couple of years, Arbor Day, we go to the elementary schools and we um, work with the kids directly, and we always plant trees. We actually now have a I call it the uh, the tree Jehovah's Witnesses. The tree tenders are going door to door now, and we have literature that we hand out, and a lot of people don't like us, but <laughs> you know, we, we get a few people that places we wouldn't normally plant trees that want trees. So we've been using the ISA free material. There's PDFs on the benefits of trees and, you know, how to plant a tree, how to care for a tree. And we just go door to door with that. And we have a little message typed up that's printed on the back of the page. And it's an activity that tree tenders can do in the, uh, in the pandemic. You know, we can't really get together and have uh, volunteer plantings right now, but we can, do small groups of that. So keeping the uh, tree tenders occupied is always an issue. If you don't have volunteer activities, the volunteer group's not going to last very long. And we don't do too much planting with our volunteers because of the size of the trees that we plant is, you know, two inch caliper trees are a few hundred pounds to work with. So. Has anybody ever used tree tenders to help um, nursery people with tree planting in the nursery? We, we have not might be something that you might think, you know, they can actually see the tree go in and then see the tree come out and then see it mm-hmm. replanted in the community. It might give them a, um, a continuity that they have not seen before Yeah. to keep them busy during the times when you might not have a lot of stuff happening. But I'm sure the nursery people would love it because they all are short staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the opportunity of, you know, working at a nursery is far and few between so you know having tree tenders there who know a little something about trees might be very helpful for a nursery person yeah i know uh, we had christopher uland on at harmony from harmony hill and he was telling us about the labor problem and um that you know that might be something that people could think about as Mm -hmm. a volunteer working at a nursery yeah i mean i basically volunteered when i was in my teens for my grandparents nursery and my uh, my dad called it summer camp, but <laughs> what was your ner- you grandparents' else? nursery? <laughs> well, interestingly enough, um, the nursery that is now Harmony Hills was originally on my grandparents' farm in the 1970s and 80s. Oh wow! It didn't really have a name, and my grandfather and the nursery manager hated each other. <laughs> but my grandfather was a very um, hard Irish man to get along with, so <laughs> and. I would work there in the summer and then I would flop between him and making hay with my grandfather. So the current nursery actually has no relation to the old nursery. It was just, it was sold, I believe in the late nineties and my grandfather had nothing to do with it other than he just leased the property. So. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Yeah. I hear so many stories. Uh, I guess Chris as well. Uh, 
so many of our guests are second and third generation as far as getting your hands dirty uh, with that summer job in your teens, making three or four dollars an hour, thinking it was great money. And then the next thing you know, you're looking for college curriculum and the continuity there. Yeah. And I actually um, I ended up going more into the retail side. I worked at Potter's. It hasn't been there for probably 20 years now, but um, pretty close to where Sam Brown's is. It was on the corner there across from the vet clinic, but. Okay. I was more interested in going somewhere new every day. So we were delivering trees to homes and it was a little bit better paying than what my grandfather was offering at the time. So (laughs) (laughs) So you put him out of business. (laughs) Grandfather's wage schedule was based on his, uh, the 1940s still. So. And you were his grandson. So he wanted to get less expensive labor. (laughs) Michael, what's the population of uh, Westchester? We have 18,000 full-time residents and about 16,000 students. So I see. So I really think that Westchester is a much more complex environment than an 18,000 resident borough would otherwise suggest. It has the same complexity as this, you know, a small city with our That's what population. I'm picking up on. Yeah. yeah. And I was think I I wanted to compliment. I mean, I think that that main street uh, of Westchester is one of the most vibrant, walkable commercial strips. Uh, you know, I, it's got a great vibe. And if I'm remembering correctly, aren't there still some sizable, overmature oaks along? Is that High Street that runs down the middle? The main street that most of the restaurants are on is uh, Gay Street. Gay so Street, yes. Gay Street and Market Street are the east-west, and then there's um, High Street is north-south. So there is some, you know, restaurants on High Street, but most of the action is on Gay Street. So that was actually redesigned in the 70s by a landscape architect named Tom Kamita. Probably heard of him before. He's He does a lot of big, um, kind of grandiose, like, urban planning. He's been on the Chester Pl- uh, County Planning Commission. His wife's also a state uh, representative in the uh, state Senate. So he kind of was the catalyst. Uh, Westchester, when I grew up there, was not much of a, um, wasn't much going on. It was a real quiet, kind of dusty town. They redesigned the downtown. They put the bump outs in. They increased, you know, some of that well space. So a lot of those bigger trees were planted at that time in like 74 and 75. So there is quite a few large trees. There's some big willow oaks that were planted in the 70s. On the western side of Gay Street, there's a lot of red and pin oaks that are unfortunately uh, checking out. We just removed two this month, so. They had a little bit of vision there planting the willow oaks back then, yeah. because that wasn't one that was typically planted. Yeah, I'm surprised by how large they get. Actually, I've seen some ones in New Jersey with an enormous um, circumference, one in a place called Sadler's Wood right in Cherry Hill. Mm-hmm. It's one of the old pieces of property that was left to the one of the first black free man living in New Jersey. And that, that site is amazing. And there's so many old trees on there. But that's the first time I ever saw a willow oak with, we couldn't put your arms around it. That's yeah. how big it was. There's a few willow oaks in Chester County that I have really detailed planting records on that are 40 some inches in diameter now. What comes to mind is uh, Kendall Crossland's another one of my consulting clients. They have really detailed records of all their um, tree plantings. And most of that community was built in the late 60s through the early 80s. And then there's three willow oaks there that are 48 inches in diameter and they're only from 74. So. Wow. Wow. Also really nice soil down there. So that does help. And there's no constrictions there at all. It's wide open area but 
I'm sorry. Did you say that was Candle, the uh, retirement community? Uh, yep, they have an arboretum. Um, it's Arbnet level two right now, so it's a it's a beautiful campus. Right on uh, Route One. Yep, it's yeah. essentially the same. It's the same size as Longwood, just on the other side of fifty two between nine twenty six and one there. So we have to do our last question that we always ask, and we know that you can't pick your favorite child, Michael, um, <laughs> but we we. We, we know that you can pick a group of favorite trees or tree that you find to be, uh, have a connection to maybe. So I, my favorite tree is probably the, uh, anything in the Quercus family. White oak is, I've always said is my favorite tree. Um, I mean, I've been down South, the live oaks just blow my mind, but I'm a big fan of, uh, nautical history. So between the English Navy and the uh, early American Navy with ships constructed of oak. And there's a, there's an old uh, sea shanty about heart of oak. And when I had my company, our employee of the year award was called the heart of oak award. Oaks always symbolize strength and longevity. It's always been near and dear to me. That's a great way to end the show. Strength Mm -hmm. and longevity. Uh, Going through this COVID period, um, we were so delighted that you could be on our podcast this week. And we wish you continued success in your work with Westchester and land studies. And thank you again. I could just say also, um, Michael, Westchester's lucky to have you. I mean, uh, this is my first time meeting you and hearing in depth about your work. And, you know, in a perfect world, lots of these uh, the satellite suburban communities would have a, a Michael Dunn on board because um, you're solving a lot of problems and you're delivering the best information to communities and so often it goes off the rails uh in in especially where the developments are are new and the commercial strips are new and the highways are expanding you're doing great work so thank you for joining us oh well well thanks for having me guys it's it's a real pleasure um hopefully we can uh see each other in person sometime in the future (laughs) or maybe even have you come back on our show Mm -hmm. would love to Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you.